But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerub, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men up, went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Serebim and struck them at the, at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, near tribe by tribe. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me, how, tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. I was uh, this week reminded of one of the pleasures of parenthood. I uh, was I just happened to see a posting from my, uh, my nephew and his wife, my great niece, they were at a restaurant, or she was at a restaurant with her daughter. And uh, apparently, uh, the, my great niece likes salsa. She's walking now, and uh, so she described, decided in the middle of the restaurant to climb up onto the table, grab a fork, and just dig into that salsa. And, and of course, mom took that opportunity to kind of capture the salsa going everywhere and uh, the adventuresome spirit of her daughter. We've all seen that, right, as, as parents uh, or being around little children, how they will do things. Uh, you will walk into the room and you will discover that there's chocolate all over their hands and you'll ask them, did you get into the cookies? 
And they'll say, no, I didn't get into the cookies. Or they have frosting all across their face. Or perhaps, you know, they're sitting in the middle of the floor with the flour that they had gotten into and decided to make it snow. And there's flour all over your house. And you ask them, did you pull the flour out of the closet? And they'll look up with you with those big eyes and they'll go, no, right? One of our sons, I won't say which one, was found in the middle of a garbage pile where he had taken the garbage can and dumped it out, decided that that was better than the hundreds of dollars worth of toys that we had bought him to play with, right? And then, of course, denies it. It's kind of, I think we've all had that experience. And they're little ineffective ways of sinning and then hiding it and denying it. Uh, at, at, on one hand, for just from a parental, you know, human perspective, it's, it's kind of cute. But from an eternal perspective, it's not. Because this is just the first steps as they grow older. Their sin, they're denying it, they're hiding it. It becomes more severe. It has greater consequences. And our story this morning is putting this concept before us in living color. When we come to the beginning in the first half of this chapter, it opens with the dismay and the discouragement of God's people. It's been said that God's people are never more vulnerable than on the heels of spiritual victory or success. And that's what you find here in Joshua chapter seven. They have just come out of the battle with Jericho We looked at that battle in chapter six in a couple of messages. God delivers this fortified city into their hands. It didn't cost them anything. No lives were lost. It was a miraculous event. But of course, God had given the instructions that when it came to the city of Jericho, everything within the city was devoted to God except for the gold and the silver and the things that could be used within the treasury of the tabernacle. Beyond that, everything was to be destroyed. It was to be burned as a burnt offering to God in dedication to God. And of course, God gives this incredible victory to them. And in and, and the aftermath of that victory, Joshua, rightly so, sends out spies. Where do we go next? And they come back with report. We should be in AI. AI is just a, a little town round the road, but it's strategic. There's crossroads. There's a couple of roads that go throughout the, the countryside that will allow us access to the northern part of the country, to the southern part of the country. It's high ground, and so it's secure in case other countries want to come and attack us or other, uh, other people. So, so it, there was a lot of strategic rationale for the, why these spies would come back and say, we should go attack AI. This is where we need to go next. So that, that was not necessarily a bad option and a bad decision. Uh, they, unfortunately, they took it somewhat for granted, didn't they? They said, you know, hey, this is like a skirmish for us. Just 3,000, maybe one, let's send 1% of our army. That's probably about what they said. Let's just send 1% of our army over there. We'll take care of this. We don't need to bother everyone. And, and what you see in this passage is a, a gaping silence. 
What do you not hear or see in this passage? You do not see Joshua and the leaders taking this input from the spies and then spending time inquiring of God, should we go and attack Ai next? I mean, God had laid out the plans for Jericho. You're gonna see in other future chapters, God says, go attack this, do that, go here, do it in this manner. He's very involved in the lives of the people. Remember that great commander of God's army appears to Joshua and says, no, no, no. When it comes to the conquest of the promised land, you're to join my plans. I don't join your plans. And so this is the guidance that God gives. And what you don't read in this passage is that they do this. Now, maybe they did, but I think it's not there for a reason They got caught up in the moment, the report of the spies, like we often do, it's easy for us to default as human beings to our own wisdom, to self-reliance, to be overconfident. And we come to decisions in our lives and we think, oh, this is just a no-brainer. This isn't that important. Isn't it interesting? You never realize the importance of the decision oftentimes until after the fact, that those little things that you don't think are all that important later prove to be extremely important So how wise is it of God's children to take advantage of the privilege that we have through Christ as our high priest to come before the throne of God and inquire of him, what should I do? How should I carry this out? We're good about doing that for the big things, for Jericho, but what about AIs in our lives? That's that's where the difficulty comes. And of course, unfortunately, It ends tragically, at least in this first portion, 36 men are killed. You know, 1% of the army is sent and 1% of that army is killed in battle. And you see in verses six through 10, which I don't think we read, the dismay, the discouragement of Joshua and the people and the leaders, they, they put on sackcloth, they, they pour ashes across their bodies, they fall on their face before God, there's wailing, there's crying. They begin to pray and beseech God and Joshua says to God, God, what is going on? Why has this happened to us? Why did you bring us across the Jordan River to simply be wiped out and destroyed here in the promised land? It would have been better for us to stay on the other side of the Jordan River than to come on over and now be destroyed and wiped out. Does that sound familiar? If you're you're familiar with the Old Testament, On numerous occasions, the Israelites, after the Exodus, I mean, between Egypt and the Red Sea, and then after the Red Sea, on numerous occasions, they lift up their voices towards God in a similar way. And interestingly, they're judged for it. Severe consequences come about because of the way they approach God, you know, accusing him of bringing them into a situation where they're gonna be wiped out. So why doesn't that happen to Joshua and the leaders here? When you look carefully at what he says, you realize, first of all, that, okay, guys, slow your roll a little bit here. I mean, when you look at it objectively, I mean, it's, it's horrible to see 36 men out of your army killed, but you still have roughly... 297,963 more or thereabouts. You still got a pretty big army and it's actually kind of assuming something here. You're assuming the very worst. You're assuming that God is not going to keep his promises. 
So why doesn't God wipe them out? Because Joshua is doing the right thing in this case. He doesn't understand what's going on here. And he prays and he comes to God and he pours out his heart before God. And he asks legitimate questions that are coming out of ignorance. He doesn't know what's going on. What you don't see him doing is accusing God. You don't see him entering into some kind of rash judgment upon God. In fact, when you look carefully at his words, as he asks all these questions, like other men of God, like David and, and Elijah will do in low moments and points of discouragement and despair, God doesn't, doesn't expect us to just live life with a stiff upper lip never asking questions, never expressing our, our emotions and our frustrations. But when we do so, we're supposed to do it remembering that he is still God and we aren't. That we don't have the right to come and question God as if he is accountable to us, as if he has to answer to my satisfaction and reach my bar of what is right and wrong. Uh-uh, no. But when we come to God as confused children saying, I don't get it, what's going on? God receives these prayers and these inquiries. And ultimately, when you look at what, what Joshua says, he says, Lord, please help, help me understand because this is not gonna, if, if it continues, like, it's not gonna end well for our nation. And most importantly, he says, what will you do for your great name? If it continues like this, this is going to affect the, the pagan people's understanding of who you are as God. I know that you're the sovereign God of all gods. So help, I don't understand. And so God answers and God reveals that in this case, it was not some ordinary sin, but it was a covenant transgression of the worst kind with severe repercussions for the Israelites. In verses 11 and 12, which Jonathan read for us, God just states bluntly, Israel has sinned. You have broken faith, literally, you have broken faith with me. You have violated the covenant by taking the devoted things. And so Israel has sinned and the consequences of this is that I no longer have your back. You will not be victorious in battle. I will not support you. And ultimately, if you don't address this issue, I am going to devote you to destruction like I devoted Jericho to destruction. That's pretty serious, isn't it? It's very serious. And at the same time, it's kind of confusing for us as, as Americans. We say, wait a second. Israel hasn't sinned. Achan sinned. One dude sinned. His family sinned. Not the other two million people, but this is one of those examples, one of those times where we cannot bring our American individualism to scripture, but instead we have to adjust our thinking to God's way of thinking as he reveals it in the scriptures. And from God's perspective, Achan's sin was so egregious that Israel as a nation is now facing an existential crisis. If, there, if there's one thing that we must take away from this passage in Joshua chapter seven is that sin's consequences go far beyond the person who sins. 
Sin's consequences always impact others. They go far beyond us as the individual who may commit those sins. Certainly as you look at scriptures, you see that sin has always had a greater impact, a wider impact than the actual person who commits to sin. Just ask Adam. (laughs) Romans chapter five, for as by one man, sin came into the world and death comes through sin so that death passes upon all men for all sinned. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam fell, we fell. This is the understanding of scripture that sin's consequences go far beyond the person who sins. Most of us and pull up examples from our own lives where we have been or where a family has been or a church has been affected by the sin of someone else even though that sin may not have been done against them or even though they or us, we may not have actually committed the sin. Sin, church, threatens the peace and purity of God's people and as a result, it has to be dealt with directly and in an uncompromising manner. And that's, that's why at times in the history of our church, those of you who have been with us for a while, you have seen where we have had some, some sad occasions where we have had to exercise church discipline. And the reason we do not do that is because of what we learned last week in chapter six, that, that God does not wink at sin. Sin is serious. It always goes far beyond the person who actually does the sin. Its consequences can be great, it can be damaging, and that's what happened to Israel. So in the first portion of this chapter, you see the discouragement, the dismay of God's people, and then in the middle portion, you see the disordered desires of Achan. In verse, beginning in verses 10 through, through 21, God gives Joshua the insight that he needs. And he tells Joshua, not only has the sin happened, as somebody has taken the devoted things, it's time to root out this sin. And this is how you do it. First, you tell the people of Israel to consecrate themselves and to consecrate themselves overnight. In other words, they were to have an evening to sit in their homes where they reflected and they prayed and they inquired of God, am I the reason why this tragedy has fallen upon your people? Where they were to do self-reflection reflection and put themselves before the the keen insight of the Holy Spirit. And then the next day, they were to get up and they were to gather the whole nation together and by lots, they were to draw straws effectively or whatever form of of discerning that was. They would take, first of all, the heads of all the tribes, the 12 tribal heads, and they would draw lots. And the short stick, I'm gonna use that as an example, would reveal, and of course it was Judah, And then they take all the clans and they're then the tribe of Judah and they do the same thing and it comes down to the clan. And then they take all the households within that that clan and that took them down to the household and the family ultimately of Achan. And when this occurs, Joshua comes to Achan in verse 19, my son, give glory to the God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. How does Achan even come here to this place? How does he arrive at this destination in his life? Let's understand 
that through Moses and the giving of the law, you'll read in Numbers and Deuteronomy in Leviticus numerous times where God warns his people, do not take those things which are devoted to me. Last week we saw that if somebody in the next town of Israel, for example, took devoted things, the Israelites were to destroy the town, killed everybody, burn it. That if your son takes the devoted thing, the father is to report this to the spiritual leaders. And then when that child or that son or daughter maybe faced execution, the father was responsible for throwing the first stone. How hard is this? So in other words, Achan knew. And even going into the battle of Jericho, at the, on the first day, the army was instructed, do not take anything from this city it's devoted to God. If you do, you'll be destroyed. On the seventh day, when they marched around the seventh time, before they go into the city, before they blow the trumpet, Joshua once again tells everybody, we're about to blow the trumpet and when it sounds and the walls fall, go forward, take the city. But remember, do not take any of the devoted things, otherwise you will be destroyed. So Achan has had warning after warning, what on earth was he thinking? How does this happen? Well, back in the mid-90s, Tim Keller brought a, a sermon series called the, the, the Seven Deadly Sins. You're probably familiar with that concept of seven deadly sins. You know, there's all these different sins, anger, envy, gluttony, etc., lying. And Keller says in that sermon that the seven deadly sins are like holding up a black diamond. And, and each of those sins, like a black diamond, you can turn it, and each facet of that diamond gives a different perspective, but each perspective ultimately is still giving the same portrait of the dark heart that's within that diamond, the heart of darkness. And so you come to an individual sin, our own individual sins, when you look at those sin, that sin carefully, it's saying something about the heart of darkness. Keller writes this. He says, so every single sin shows us something about how sin infects and affects all of us. Sin has affected our hearts, so our desires are disordered. Our desires are disordered in such a way that good and necessary things become cravings. They become yearnings. St. Augustine gave it a word. He said, we're all characterized by what he calls concupiscence. Please advance the slide, thank you. Concupiscence means there's an infection, there's a disorder. Our desires have been disordered in such a way that good and necessary things now drive us and we crave them. Sin, in other words, makes us all addicted to something. The spectacular addictions like alcoholism, drug use, are just a template for understanding how all of our hearts work in some way. We all crave something and we do it in such a way that is very, very bad for us. So how do these disordered desires work themselves out in our lives? How do concupiscence that inner desire, that dis disordered desire, and an actual temptation, how do they work together to result in sinful actions that have, in Aiken's case, horrible consequences? Well, you find the answer in verse 21, when Aiken says, I saw 
among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. When you look at that verse carefully, you see how concupiscence and temptation will work hand in hand leading to sinful actions and disastrous results. It starts by seeing. Hebrew word means to behold or to gaze upon something, to examine it, to observe it, to get acquainted with it. So long before Achan coveted and took the, the, these objects, he opened himself up to temptation by going beyond the first look to gazing upon it. You know what I mean by that, right? You see a young couple who's newly in love, how they just will look at each other with these adoration and these eyes and, and everything else, and, and you get it, right? They're enamored with each other. And that's what's happening here. Achan beheld it. He put these objects in the center of his attention. I mean, after all, how did Achan know that there's 200 pieces of silver? How did he know? He counted it. <laughs> How did he know that the gold weighed one and a quarter pounds? He weighed it. He apparently got GQ magazine and knew, ooh, that's the latest styles from Babylon right there. Those tennis shoes are worth more than he makes all month long. I mean, you, you know, he, he gets it. And so he weighed these things. He counted it, he handled it, he weighed it. And church, when you begin to weigh things and give weight, to something, what happens is we end up elevating its importance. We glorify it. Have you ever heard that expression, the weight of God's glory? These two these concepts go hand in hand throughout the scripture, glory and weight. And when we glorify something or we glorify someone, we begin to imagine the beauty of that person or that thing or the significance or the importance of that thing or that person to us. This can happen in a good way. When we gaze upon Jesus, let us look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the cross and endured the shame. We can gaze upon Jesus in a good way that ends up causing us to glorify Jesus. We can do this with our heavenly father as we consider his goodness in our lives, as we read the Psalms, for example, and we meditate upon them and we put, fix our gaze, the gaze of our soul upon God and his goodness. This is a good thing because gazing upon him like this, giving that weight to God that is due him alone causes us to in turn glorify him. But we can also do this in a dangerous way. We can do this with objects, toys, a car, a promotion, a house, political leaders, political party, our nation, money. You get the idea. And here's the thing. There is deep within us, hardwired into our DNA, into our soul, there is deep within us an aspect of our soul that yearns to glorify. We were created 
to glorify. We are meant to glorify God. But sin has disordered this inclination. It has hijacked it so that we glorify objects and the creation rather than the creator. And this leads to sin. Specifically, I saw and then I coveted. I lusted after something. I was greedy for something. What we glorify, church, we ultimately serve and we worship. Whatever we glorify, it ultimately leads us to serve it, to worship it. And this is what happens to Achan. He beheld the beautiful clothes and the money. And by the way, he is a rich person. He's wealthy within their society. Look at all the things that are wiped out with him. He's in the tribe of Judah. He's within that messianic line of Christ. It's not unfair to say, in a sense, he's like a a prince of Israel. Small P, not the big P, but he certainly is favored. But he takes, he looks at these objects and he says, I need this in my life. He cared less at that moment about the glory of God than his own comfort or his own sense of security or importance that these objects would give him. In that moment, He's doubting the sufficiency of God for all of his needs and he turns to creation. And this happens every time we covet. We end up worshiping it. It's idolatry. It's why the Bible warns against covetousness so much. It's why the 10 commandments are bracketed by commands that touch on idolatry. Thou shalt have no other God before me, the first commandment. The last commandment, thou shalt not covet. Why is thou shalt not covet the very last commandment? Because it deals with the first commandment's issue, idolatry. Jesus warns us of all the temptations and sin that are the result of covetousness in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul says explicitly in Ephesians chapter five, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy, covetous, it's the same word, person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a covetous person, a greedy person is a what? Idolater. Worshiping the things of this world. Do you understand that Achan's sin was not simply that he stole something, he took something that didn't belong to him. He's not being judged by God simply because of a penny theft. This is idolatry. He saw it, he coveted, he took it. And he took knowing full well what the consequences could be to him and his family. He willfully, literally broke faith with God through this idolatry, even though God had warned him about this. You know, in our small group, when we were studying this passage several weeks back, one of the ladies made the observation that what we see here is a repetition of the garden, the story of Adam and Eve, where they looked upon the fruit And then they desired that fruit. So they took the fruit and ate it. And then what did they do? They hid themselves from God. You see that same pattern here with Achan. He looked, he coveted, desired it, took it, then hid it. Same pattern. Church, have you seen this pattern in your life? We should come to this story and think about it. I know I can't stand in righteous indignation and righteous judgment of Achan and wag my finger at him because in my own life, 
through the decades following Christ, I've seen this exact same pattern express itself in any number of ways. When you stop and think about your own life, do you see that pattern? Do you see this tendency, these disordered desires that come from our fallen nature, sin working itself out? What do you gaze upon? What do you contemplate? What in your life are you giving significance to other than our Lord Jesus Christ, believing that it will bring you the the comfort that you want or the security that you feel that you need, the, the sense of significance and purpose and meaning? What is it that you look at, that you gaze on? Even now, this week, Through the years, when I look at my own life and I consider that question, I could say at different times, my children, a promotion, climbing the corporate ladder, a bigger house. I still look back at that and say, what on earth was I thinking? (laughs) How dumb. Uh, My wife, food, fine food. Money, a boat, a better boat, and then a better boat, (laughs) toys. Here's where it gets really hard. You guys, ministry and ministry success and respect from my peers. You see, This can manifest itself in our lives in any number of ways. These disordered desires that ultimately end in idolatry put us in a place of peril. Church Joshua 7, it's it's meant to warn those of us within the family of God to take sin seriously, to devote ourselves to the pursuit of holiness that through the help and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, pursuing sanctification, fleeing that which is immoral. This chapter, this story is is telling us that sin's consequences, they go so far beyond us when we sin. But most importantly, this story is highlighting to us the severity and the goodness of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 22 to 26, it's a hard scene. It's a rough one. They bring Achan, they bring his children, they bring his wife, they bring his animals, they bring his pets, they bring his tent, they bring all of his wealth, they bring everything. And they bring it to this valley And Joshua says to him in verse 25, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. They burned them with fire and the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor or literally the Valley of Trouble. Joshua says, you've brought this trouble upon us and now God is going to bring trouble upon you for your sin. And the consequences are severe. You know, modern critics come to this passage with a sense of outrage. Where is God's grace in this chapter? 
I mean, this God is not the God of the New Testament. We touched on this last week. This is another example of the cruelty of the Old Testament God. But what they don't understand in this passage is that God's grace and goodness is woven throughout the passage. God's grace and goodness was seen well before this passage with all the warnings to the Israelites to not take the devoted things. It wasn't like Achan went into this and go, oops, I had no idea. This is a willful act of breaking faith with the covenantal God. And God out of his grace and goodness had put this before him. You see God's grace and goodness in the the night of consecration. Ask yourself, what would have happened if right then and there, while the whole nation is praying in the privacy of their homes saying, God, is it me? What would have happened if if Achan would have gotten out of his tent and walked over to Joshua and knocked on his tent pole and said, Joshua, I need to talk to you. I'm the man. I sinned. It's me. What would have, how would that have affected his family? Maybe he would have still been, had to face the, the consequences of his sin, but would have it saved his family's life if he had owned it and said, I did this. My, my wife was not, she didn't ask me to go and do this. I, I did this. Or, or how about the grace of God for the family themselves? As the lots are being chosen, that family could have stepped up and obeyed at any moment in time God's commands as it relates to a family member who takes the devoted things. His grace is there. His grace and goodness is in Joshua's question to Achan. Even when he's discovered though, Joshua says, tell me what you did. Give glory to God. And Achan's response, how different it is from David's response when he was confronted by Nathan. When Nathan confronts David, David confesses to the sin, just like Achan confessed to the sin. But with David's confession is this brokenheartedness, this contrition, this godly sorrow, this desire to repent and make it right. What you have with Achan is simply, yep, I did it. Caught me. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Well, okay, they came for me. You didn't know I could sing, did you? (laughs) Critics struggle with this passage and passages like this because they do not acknowledge how bad the bad news of the gospel is nor how good the good news of the gospel is. But we see both of these these principles in tension in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The bad news of the gospel is that our sin inevitably leads to death. And not just physical death, the worst form of death for those who do not repent of their sins is eternal death, eternal separation from God. This is the severity of the gospel. How bad the bad news is, is our desperate condition apart from Christ, but how good the good news is. But... The gift of God is eternal life to those who trust in Christ Jesus as Lord. And so Christian, this passage points us straight to the goodness and the grace of God that is poured out upon us through Jesus and the cross. This story is not about one man being responsible, simply about one man being responsible for the 
for the physical defeat and the spiritual defeat of the Israelites. It's primarily about the one man, the God man, who will ultimately come and be held responsible for our sins so that spiritual victory can be given to all those who believe. As the apostle Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Church, Christian, in the same way that God's wrath towards, uh, towards Israel ceased when the sin of Achan was dealt with, our sin and God's wrath towards our sin was dealt with when Jesus satisfied it on the cross through his shed blood. The wrath of God has been satisfied and all who believe on him have everlasting life. We do not live as children of wrath, but as children of promise, for there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you here this morning may not be Christians. You're seeking answers. And so if you're a seeker this morning, I want you to know that the bad news of the gospel, it is severe and you see it in this story, but it's not the last word. This Valley of Achor, this is not the last time it appears in the scriptures. Later on in the life of the Israelites, next slide please, and then the next slide. Later on in the life of the Israelites, they will commit spiritual adultery. The Northern Kingdom will be utterly destroyed like Jericho. The Southern Kingdom is now in danger. And through the prophet Hosea, he tells them what is going to happen. But ultimately the promise of God to the Israelites is this, I will give her her vineyards and make the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble, a door of hope. He'll say through Isaiah, as Isaiah considers when the Messiah ultimately comes and makes all things new, that the valley of Achor will be a place for the herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. The valley of trouble will become a valley of peace and a door of hope. And so if you are a seeker this morning, understand that because Jesus was troubled in our place, our valley of trouble can become a door of hope through him. I don't know what you come here with this morning and what troubles you bring. But I know that the solution to your troubles is this door of hope that turns our valley of troubles into everlasting life. And so if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you this morning to come see me after the service. We'll have lunch together or go stop by our care table and talk to a pastor or a Stephen minister so your questions can be answered. Lord Jesus, would you pour your grace out upon those who are here who they bring troubles with them this morning, looking for answers. Help them, Lord Jesus, to see that you are the answer, that you are the door through whom we walk into eternal life. And for those of us who are Christians who maybe are struggling with sin, maybe we are in a season of life where we are under bondage to habitual sin and besetting sin, would you help us, Lord Jesus, to draw upon the grace that comes through you, the one who has paid for all of our sins so that we can come before you, Heavenly Father, and plead our case and our need for help. May you hear our prayers. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.